of spiritual truth. He talked about he must be... Yeah, he used it. Did he ever use weddings or wedding relationships to picture anything spiritually? It's a, it's a yes or no question. Okay, the answer is yes. When or what did he use? The virgins coming with the, uh, having the lanterns ready, okay? Uh, did John the Baptist ever, did he ever use John the Baptist as a wedding, part of a wedding symbolism? He said, I am not the groom, I am the, I'm the friend or the best man. So you have, you have different possibilities in scripture where, or different illustrations. Jesus is the groom, and, uh, but uh, John was the best man. We have the bride of Christ is just brought out in scripture, that whole idea that we're united in that same sense. You have the groom coming for the bride, uh, both the virgins lighting and then the groom also parading through. And in Ephesians 6, further on, it's not the Jesus speaking directly, but indirectly through Paul, that we're supposed to love one another as a husband and wife have a relationship. So you have weddings used symbolically to picture spiritual truth, which means that during a wedding time, man, you can give some good spiritual lessons and draw people's attention to Jesus Christ from that point. Speaking of Jesus Christ, let's talk about him. We're headed to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 as we continue our study in the life of Christ. So those of you who are just joining with us, uh, we've been doing this for months now and we're just going through the four gospels together and what we have talked about already is a lot of his life, his early years, his early ministry, his 18 months in Galilee where he did most of the miracles that are recorded. He then took six months, went aside with his disciples and he's teaching them privately, personally, and did a lot of the personal instruction, gave them a lot of details about praying, a lot of details about how to deal with conflicts with one another, things like that. Now, the last six months before he goes to Jerusalem in the Passion Week, he is going to do both public and private ministry. And during this time, these last six months, you can basically mark this six-month period by three different visits that he makes to Jerusalem. Three different feast days. One at the beginning, one at the middle, and one at the end of the six months. And uh, these three major feasts that we'll talk about in a moment, he uses those opportunities each time to do some preaching. John chapter 10 records two of those major feasts. And we don't see it if you read John chapter 10. If you look at verses 20 and 21, you think it's continuation. But actually, there's three months in between those two verses. And so one is the early feast, one is the second feast. But at each one of these feasts, he preaches in Jerusalem. The crowd gets really upset. They start threatening him. At the second time that we're going to be talking about today, they are so angry that they pick up stones. They want to stone them. And so you have the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Dedication, Feast of Passover. I give you basically the different times of the seasons that give you an idea of his last six months, obviously March, April is when he dies, and that is going to be at Passover. We are right at the beginning of this second feast. It is that, as I already mentioned, three-month gap between, I said 20 and 21, it's 21 and 22, those verses in John chapter 10. John alone records this feast. None of the other gospels record what happens in John chapter 10, verses 22 and following. The Jews get so upset, as I already mentioned, that this is the time that the Jewish crowd picks up stones and they're ready to stone Jesus and then he leaves Jerusalem he'll spend three months preaching in the countryside and then work his way back towards Jerusalem and then that'll be his his passion week and only Luke records his preaching during those three months when he is out in Perea and then working his way back towards Jerusalem and most of that last three months of teaching is going to be a lot of uh, instruction a lot of parables we'll get into those things but we won't get there today and then he comes back at Passover and that's when he's killed. We are right at the beginning of this second feast, the second three and a half months of this last six months. We are in John chapter 21, uh, John chapter 10, verse 21, and what happens here is Jesus comes back for the feast of dedication. Now this passage is loaded, so you got to have your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at verses, and I'm going to be flying through a variety of different things, and hopefully some of your notes will make a little bit of sense as you fill in the blanks, as well as uh, try to pick up a lot of little details. But let's read. Here it says, in chapter 21. This is after the previous feast, three months before, that many of the people said he has a devil, he is crazy. Verse 20, why do you hear him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open you the eyes of the blind? Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He spends several weeks preaching and teaching. We talked about that. Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 12 and 13, he is preaching. Now he comes back. So now we're three months later, it says, and it was at Jerusalem, the 
the Feast of Dedication. It is winter time. Okay, he goes on. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him, and they said, How long do you make us confused or doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us what? What does your Bible read? Tell us plainly. Okay, now here, those of you who weren't with us about three weeks ago when I was here, that we talked about this feast, okay, there's a couple different facts and it'll make a little bit more sense. This feast of dedication is the newest of all the feasts at the time of Jesus Christ. It is the most recent in history. Most of them go all the way back to Moses, back to the law, but not the feast of dedication. The feast of dedication was one of the uh, newer feasts. It had, was an eight-day celebration. It had to do with basically their 4th of July. Independence Day for them. They had been under uh, Greek domination from the mid-300s until the mid-100s, until 160 BC. The last of the Greek leaders who, were in, who was ruling over them was a fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is described in scripture as a symbol or a representative um, as far as his craziness and his actions as what end-time figure. Daniel compares Antiochus Epiphanes to what end-time figure? Antichrist. So this guy is just, he's a crazy, crazy individual. He um, makes a lot of Jewish practices outlawed. They couldn't have the law. They weren't supposed to celebrate feasts. They weren't to make sacrifices. They weren't to circumcise their male babies, which was, all that was very, very traditional, very uh, oriented to the Jews. And so he was upset with the Jews, and he committed what's called the abomination of desolation, sacrificing a pig in the temple area, which was to show his disdain for the Jews. The Jews started a revolt. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. And it is their form of guerrilla warfare that eventually won them independence. They got that independence in the 160s. In fact, 164 BC, they get Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is freed for the first time and under Jewish control. And they, when they free Jerusalem, they have a celebration. They cleanse the temple of all the idols that Antiochus Epiphanes had moved in. They go back to cleansing this place, cleaning up, and they want to to restore everything. They find the old menorah, that big candelabra. They find it and they want to light it as a symbol that this is God's presence and God's light is there. And uh, when, they, when they light this or when they clean everything off, they only find there's enough purified or uh, blessed oil to last for one day. They use it for the one day. They're going to figure out what they do later on. But the candelabra stays lit, and lit for eight days. They assume it's a miracle. So this becomes the miracle of their independence. They called it the time of rejoicing. They made this Hanukkah. They made this that feast of dedication. And that's where we get Hanukkah. And that's why the candles at Hanukkah. We think sometimes people think it's because Christmas and Hanukkah both have candles. Well, that, that's based on the Hanukkah idea. That you have a light and this candle was lit. And so that Jewish feast became very popular. And it was the idea of renewal. That's what Hanukkah literally means in the Hebrew. It means to be renewed. It has the idea of uh, dedicating oneself. And that's very important that, G that we understand that because the words that Jesus uses in John chapter 10, he uses Hanukkah and saying, I am Hanukkah and calls himself that when he is preaching and teaching, which we'll get into. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He is surrounded by the leaders. That makes perfect sense. You and I would understand that. They would surround him. Do our, do our presidential candidates get surrounded by crowds? on TV and stuff. Do you see that? Well, Jesus is the, he is the popular character. He is in the news. Uh, there's a lot of you know, articles going out about Jesus because he is a controversial figure right now, like some of our political leaders are controversial. And so they, they come to Jesus, and interesting statement. As we already read, and you said your Bible says that, that tell us plainly, tell us clearly. They are asking him to really make it very, very clear, who are you? what are you? You got to tell us. Now Jesus' response is really interesting. And Jesus responds to them and they're going to make this, their, 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 Jesus' comment to summarize that he's going to make this so clear that at the end of his discussion with them, they pick up the stones to stone him because they, well, you tell me, why would they pick up stones to kill Jesus? What does that indicate that they think he has just claimed? He's blasphemy. He has just claimed himself to be who? God. Okay, so he is going to be clear. He is going to be as clear as glass. And so he comes up and says it. Now, now they're coming to Jesus and they say, tell us plainly. Here's some interesting thoughts. 
Okay, that when you look at this passage and you understand, and you've already been studying the last few weeks, you've been studying this, they say, tell us plainly if you be who? What's your Bible say? Christ. Give me the uh, Old Testament word for that in the Hebrew. Messiah. Okay, now watch with this. Okay, by their own words, they are, they are, they're getting the gist of what he's saying. They under, they've understood what he has said. They are saying, okay, tell us more clearly. Are you really the Messiah? They know this isn't, this isn't total news to them. They just want to hear it more clearly. Remember, he has already been saying, the last message he preached that we saw as he approached Jerusalem was that if you don't repent, I will come with fiery judgment. And he has preached on the idea that the fig tree is going to be destroyed. Uh, Excuse me. He has preached on the idea that you better get right because it's like going to court. Get right with the the person that's taking you to court immediately. Otherwise, you will suffer the full extent of the law. And so he's been preaching, repent or you will be judged. And he's been making that so clear. And so he's been telling them, because of unbelief, because of unbelief, that remember the phrase he used in Luke chapter 11, 12, and 13? confess me that was the phrase he used if you don't confess me before men I will not confess you before who my father okay and so he's been talking about that he's been warning them about unbelief that they haven't believed now it seems as if they're blaming him for their lack of belief that we don't believe it's not our fault we don't believe it's whose fault it's yours because you haven't made it clear enough to us. Okay, does that ever happen that people might today say, oh, I just don't understand. You know, it's not clear enough yet. And so Jesus is going to make it very, very clear. By the way, if he makes it real, real, real clear, do you, do you think these people are sincere seekers? No, they can't be. They don't. They're part of their reason, we know that because of their response. Because when he makes it so clear, what do they do? I've already alluded to it three times. They pick up the stones to kill him. So basically what they want him to do is make it clear so we can take you to court. So we can execute you. Okay, we need your words to say, you know, you, you make the proclamation so that we can actually accuse you without implying things about you. And so this isn't, this isn't necessarily sincere seekers when they say, tell us clearly. This is his critics. Remember the city we're at. We're in Jerusalem. Okay, this has been the hard-hearted city up to this point. He's preached there. The last time he preached there, they determined that somehow they were going to kill him. Okay, now they're in their rage at the end of this. They pick up the stones as if they're going to do it themselves. And by the way, I have to remind you this. Could they execute Jesus legally? No. Whose permission do they need? The Romans. So when they pick up the stones to kill him, this is more like mob reaction. Keep that in mind, okay? So that it's more of their emotional reaction. And so Jesus is going to be very clear. This is one of your most phenomenal passages of Scripture that you could study for weeks and months in your personal devotions. And many of you know portions of this passage. You, you remember, have memorized him. Look what Jesus responds. Now, before I say any more, in Jewish history, in Jewish legalism or law, how many witnesses do you need? Two or... Three. Okay, so you have to have multiple witnesses. With that in mind, watch how Jesus deals with it. Okay, Jesus says to them right away in verse 25, okay, I have told you. That's one witness. But what's the response? Do you see it? Do you look in verse 25? You believe not. Then he says, I'll give you another witness. The works that I have done in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but... You still don't believe. Okay? So he makes it very clear. He says, I have already told you. You want me to tell you? I've told you. By the way, isn't this consistent with the Jewish, the Jewish hard-hearted peoples of this time? They had said to him, show us a sign multiple times right after he had done a miracle. Show us a sign. We, we need to see if this is real. And so he's done that. He's very consistent. So or they're very consistent. The witness of his works, his witness of his words, that he says they give you witness. And again, he, we're giving more than one witness. And he makes it clear, if you look at the wording that Jesus says in verse 25, he, the works are done in whose name? 
Okay, that's very important. Okay, he's, he's identifying himself with the Father. He'll do it all the way. Now, you may want to make this note in your Bible. The word that he used, you believe not, is what we would call in the original language a perfect verb. What that means is, for instance, back so many years ago this past week, like several of you, we're, we got married multiple years ago. You don't remember how many, do you? You got it right. Usually she says, as long as you. Okay, so... So we, got, we, got, we, we made our vows. We got married um, 38 years ago. That's a long time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. They didn't hear what you said. That's good. Okay. <laughs> they, they, we, got married, we got married back in 1978. Thank you. 1978. Okay. Are we still married? Okay. We got married, the perfect means, and we... Okay, we made it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The perfect means we got married and still are. That's a perfect verb. Okay. If you just use a past verb, it's just the idea, well, I got married and may not have lasted. The perfect verb is used to give the indication we got wedded and we're still wedded. Okay. It's still going on. He is saying to them, now think that through. He is saying, you haven't believed and what? You still don't believe. He's identifying their hearts. He says, you were hard-hearted before and you are still hearted, hard-hearted. So that's a very important. The two beliefs that he uses in those two verses are what we call perfect verbs. Okay, and it's very important that you catch that, that he is identifying their spiritual condition very, very clearly. And so this isn't somebody who is seeking. This is somebody who is very hard-hearted. And so he's given his, his legal representations and making it very clear. And then he says, here's why you guys haven't believed. Okay, you haven't believed because you're not my sheep. And he's going to go into that shepherd sheep. And by the way, remember the last time he was in Jerusalem? In the early part of chapter 10. And that's why, you see how John puts these together? What is that message in the first part of John chapter 10? That was preached three months earlier. I am the what? The good shepherd. Okay? And so now, three months later, he's going to pick up right there in Jerusalem where he had his last message on the shepherd-sheep relationship. He is going to pick up with it again and say, you're not my followers because you're not my sheep. And so he makes it very clear that you're not my sheep because my sheep hear my voice and they listen to me. Okay? They follow me. Verse 27. He says, you don't. In other words, it's not my fault that I haven't made this clear. You have chosen not to believe. And he makes it very clear. The problem is not my message. The problem is you. Your, yeah. And so he is turning it. And we know the spiritual truth. We understand. He is putting the onus. He is putting the responsibility on the response of the individual. And that is true. Still today, is it not? That God says, okay, how many people does he want to have saved? All people. So what does he do? Wherever he is lifted up, the Holy Spirit does what? He draws all men to him. So as the word of God is presented, as the word of God is presented, is it God's fault that somebody does not believe? No, it's their fault. Their response or lack of response to the message. And so he makes it very clear. His sheep are characterized by listening to his, his words. That they listen to him. That they respond. So he goes on and he makes comments built on this. And this is for you. This is for those of you who have believed. What he says these next few verses are some of the most amazing and blessed passages and promises that we can find in the New Testament. My sheep hear my voice. And then he says, okay, that's their response. Here's what I do for them. They hear, they follow, here's what I give them. And he gives all these promises, says, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they shall what? Never perish, never die, neither shall any man what? Or any creature. Pluck them out of hand. By the way, verse 28, what translation? Do you have any man? Neither shall any man pluck them out, or do you have something other than any man? Okay, there, the, did you notice man in this verse? Those of you who are dealing with some of the different English translations. In my King James, man is, is what? It's italicized, which means what? Okay, it was added to give clarity. So you could pull that away and get the understanding that he's basically saying that neither shall any, period, shall anything, any person, any 
what, any power, pluck them out of my hand. By removing man, okay, which gives a good sense to it, basically any creature, it's not just any person, but who else could not pluck us out of his hand? Satan. Yeah, Satan. Okay, now we're getting into spiritual. So he didn't say man, he just said shall any, which would include spiritual realm as well as the physical realm, the human realm. And so he gives all these benefits. Let's list them up here, okay? Some of those benefits. You get the same life that God possesses. God possesses eternal life. He gives that same life to you. He's eternal now. You are eternal as well. It's a gift. The word giving, it is not something we merit, this eternal life. It is given to us as a gift of God. There are no conditions, okay, other than responding to Jesus Christ. And he says, okay, you respond. I give this to you. And then not only does he give it to you, he, it stays with you. You don't have to meet any conditions to keep it. Okay? I will give you eternal life and you will have it as long as you obey me 100%. Aren't you glad that that is not a condition? Yeah. Because how many of us could do 100% obedience? None of us. Okay, I will give you eternal life as long as you never falter in your faith and never doubt me. Well, I wouldn't have eternal life anymore. How about you? Have you ever faltered and, and doubted God at moments? Yeah, okay. So there's no conditions to keeping the life. That's a phenomenal truth. Phenomenal truth that, that goes along with this. And this is a very important thought because there are some people who say we get saved by doing good works. Okay, well, if, or, or others will say, well, you keep your salvation by good works. Well, if we don't get saved by doing good works, we don't keep it by good works. We are saved by faith. Okay, it is a gift of God. That's an important thought. God is the one. This is important. Now, none of you, have it, did any of you, let me rephrase this. Did any of you, after you got born again, did you ever doubt your salvation? Did any of you do that? I'm putting up both hands because I had a period of about three years. It was terrible. I got saved thousands of times in those three years. Anybody else do that? If I'm not saved, Lord, please save me this time. I really mean it this time. And so there was those doubts, and a lot of that was just immaturity on my part, a lot of guilt and some good things and being sensitive. Some of it was not a clear understanding. Some of it was just, I, here, here's what the bottom line was. Whenever I would think about that, I would think, oh, I'm, you know, I, I know I prayed, I know I asked, but I don't know if he heard me. I don't know if he thought I was being genuine. I don't know if he, I mean, I'm a really bad sinner. I don't know if he would love me the same as he would love Jim or would love Alice because they, those guys have it all together. I don't. Okay, and so, you know, those doubts. This passage is one of the most phenomenal passages. It's God who keeps us saved, not us. Because he goes on and he makes that comment. He says, he says that I give unto them eternal life. And the promise is, and by the way, in the original language, it's a ume. It's called a double, double negative. It is as strong as you can make it. If we were to translate it out, you shall never, 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 never perish type of an idea. It's a double ume. And that, that is in a very impacting way of saying it to just really emphasize it like when you're talking to your kids. You will never, 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 never do this. This is a positive one that is saying you will never perish. And so it's God who keeps us secured. So my point is this, and this is where I got over my lack of confidence about salvation, is thinking about this. You know, I prayed for salvation. God gave the salvation. Often it wasn't my doubts of my prayer, it was the doubt of whether God heard me. Well, that means two of us are involved in my salvation, which is true. Okay, There was two of us involved in 73 when I got born again. Me and God. I was to pray, he was to save. Which one of us could do a better job? God. Yeah, God could do a better job. Even if I didn't have a really good prayer, he could do a really good salvation work. And he would understand my heart. Okay, none of you did this. I did this. I did this. I heard preachers preach. If you didn't say these words, you know, then you probably never got saved. I wonder if I said those words the right way. And so, you know, it was the doubts of whether I did it right. Does God know what we mean when we pray for salvation? Even if we stumble over 
Yeah, yeah. And so God does a better part than what we do. No one, now thinking of being kept by God, no one is stronger than God. That's his point. Look at the next few verses. He says that we are kept in the hand of God. And he goes and says, nobody, nothing can pluck us out of the hand of God. Why is that? Verse 29. My father which gave them to me is what? This is an important concept. He is greater or stronger than all. And no one, no thing is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So that's important. Why can't we lose our salvation? Because we are kept by God. Well, who, who, you know, can't somebody grab us out of God's hand? The answer is no. Can we jump out of God's hand if he's holding us? No, no. You know, you know, kids can, kids can get away from parents and get into a, a cage at the zoo, can't they? Parents can drop kids. Okay, at different times. Does God have greater power than any other parent? Yeah, absolutely. Can, can, he, can we get out of his sight that he doesn't see where we're going? No. Always, always knowing what we're doing, where we're at, holding us in his hand. Now watch this. Watch what Jesus does in the next verse. This is very important. He says, okay, no one, no thing can take us out of God's hand. And that means we already mentioned Satan, others, a church. If you're saved, if you're born again, the Bible doesn't use this phrase. We do. Once saved always saved. Why is that? Not because of us. It's because of God. When we get, we get accused of this a lot. We get accused that you say once saved, always saved. You think yourself something really big in the eyes of God. No, we don't. We don't think ourselves big at all. We think our God is big. That's why once saved, always saved. It's not us. It's our God. Okay. Now we know that thought, but did you see what Jesus did next? He says, not only does God hold you, but so do I. In the idea that both of us are holding you. Do you see what he says? He says, my father which gave them to me, both of us working together, okay? No man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And not only can't you pluck them out of my father's hand, but you can't pluck them out of my hand. Why is that? Because I and the father... Okay, so you've got two members of the Trinity stated here as keeping you saved. Now, we will learn later on in the New Testament, there's a third member of the Trinity who is the Holy Spirit. Does he have a role in keeping us saved? Yeah, we are what by the Holy Spirit? Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So this passage is one of your most phenomenal passages of promises that once saved, always saved. Why? Because of grace. Why? Because of God, not because of us. It is not that we are trying to be arrogant or pompous. We know we sin. We know we don't deserve. We never do. You know, somebody said to me once, they said, well, do you really think you deserve to, to remain saved? The answer is no. I don't even think I deserve to get saved in the first place. It was only by grace. God's goodness. Yeah. So Jesus says, my father and I are one. Now, could he be any clearer than that? I don't think so. He is making it clear that God and I work in harmony. We do works, and the greatest work that we do, he's just stated, the greatest work that we do together is providing eternal life and keeping those people saved. That is the most important work. And so he says that we have a, we have a unified purpose. We have a unified ministry. We have not only a unified ministry, works, purpose, but in essence, we are one. We are one in the same. And so he's making very clear. Now, if they wanted a clear statement, that was it. It was so clear. Look at the next verse. It is so clear that the people just say, okay, they took up stones to stone him. They understand. They understand better than we do because he was speaking in their language, in their context. And they're going to kill him. And Jesus' response, now you're going to need some, you're going to need some information here. The next couple of verses can get a little bit hairy. Okay. He said, turns, he says, um, lots of good works that I have showed you. They come from who? All these good things I've done, where did they come from? They come from the Father. Which one of those good things? Are you stoning me because I healed that woman that was bent over? You know, in the synagogue, prayed for 18 years? Do you stone me because I fed you 4,000 of you at one time and then 5,000 of you at another time? Are you upset by what I fed you that day? Are you upset because the last time I was here, I healed a man who was born blind? Are you mad that I healed somebody? Are you mad that, you know, I've done all these good works? You know, what is it? What is it that you're stoning me for? Exactly which one of the good deeds were you offended by? 
And so that's a very challenging question. And so he's asking them, and let's remember, they have a right to stone him, according to Leviticus, if he was performing something um, blasphemous. And he's making clear, I didn't do anything that was bad. I didn't give you corruption. I didn't do bad deeds for you. I've been helping, protecting. And so he says, which one of these good works are you stoning me for? And they say, because you're blaspheming. You're making, you're, you're making a statement that is bad. That, then the next verse, okay, it causes people confusion. And he says, they said, because you make yourself equal with God. You make yourself God. Then he goes back and he quotes an Old Testament passage. Is it not written in your law... I said, you are gods. Huh? Do you know what he's referring to here? Let's go back. Let's remind ourselves. In the Old Testament, did God ever call another person God? Yes, he did. That's what Jesus is playing with here. He's going to play with, fool with some semantics, but he's going to put them in a corner. Do you remember there's a character in the Old Testament? He said, I will make you a God to that other person. Please tell me you remember. We just did a series on him. Just a few, months, a few weeks ago, we were in his life. He's the Old Testament. It begins with M-O-S-E. Is that any other clue I can give you? Moses. I will make you a God. He uses Elohim there. I will make you God to... There was two people that he identified he would be God to. Obviously, his, his uh, antithesis. Who is Moses' enemy or opponent? Pharaoh, okay? And then Moses' colleague that became his mouthpiece. Aaron, okay. And God said, I will make you a mouthpiece. I will make you a God to these people. And did the Jewish people look at Moses and were they awestruck by his... Yeah, they were. In fact, do you remember when he comes off the mount? They think he even looked like God. And did he? Yeah, yeah okay. So he's, he's going to, and, and in the Old Testament, he uses the same word, Elohim. Okay? Um, Elohi is the singular in the Hebrew. Elohim, they don't use S in the Hebrew, they use an M. Elohim is the plural. And so it can be translated with a big G or it can be translated with a little g as we understand it. But it would be the same word. It's a spiritual being. It is a deity, somebody that should be revered. Okay. Now God said, you know, I am God. I am Elohim. Okay. Why would he use a plural describing himself in Genesis 1? Trinity. Let how many? Make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. So you understand the Elohim. But he would also use Elohim of false gods. Okay? And he used it at other times in the Old Testament referring to angels, spiritual beings that were elevated and serving God in a very particular way. He is quoting in this text Psalms 82. And in Psalm 82, the picture is there's a scene in heaven. There's a court scene. Um, by the way, did we ever see this elsewhere in the Old Testament that heaven is pictured like a courtroom? God on the throne, people gathered? Job. Yeah, Job is the other one. Um, Joshua and Zechariah in the book of Zechariah. Joshua, the high priest at that time, uh, and Zechariah. They picture the same type of thing in the book of Zechariah. That it's a courtroom scene. So you have Psalm 82, that same thing. There's a courtroom scene taking place. God assembles all the judges and gives them warning. The judges are the angelic beings. And he brings them there and he calls them Elohim. Okay, these are going to be leaders. These are going to be people that are going to carry out his message. And they're going to serve as messengers. In particular, in the book of Psalms, they're carrying the message to what group of people that they were messengers to in the Old Testament? The Jews. Yeah, they take it to the Jews. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, you have that same thing that we said already, that Moses was going to be made a god to Aaron. He was going to be made a god to Pharaoh. And so our point is this. Now watch how this, what Jesus is doing. God called special messengers representing him gods. Jesus refers to himself as God or the son of God since he is God's special messenger at that moment. And so this isn't anything different. Jesus' point is God called his special anointed ones gods. 
I am God's special anointed one. Oh, oh, oh. What does Messiah slash Christ, two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, what does the word literally mean? Not Savior. Anointed one. Okay? The anointed one. So were angels at times anointed to be messengers? The answer is yes. Okay. Was Moses anointed to be God's messenger to Pharaoh? Yeah, God's mouthpiece to Aaron. Yeah. So he's using the same concept, and he is saying, hey, wait a minute. I just called myself a God. Well, I'm not the first one that called that God called a God. God called other people gods who were given special ministries, and God even called the angels gods who were given special ministries of representing God to people. Okay, point is this. Would the Jews who heard this would they argue that Moses was not a specially appointed messenger? No. They would, what would, what would these Jewish crowds, how had they elevated Moses? Oh, really high. Because Moses, everything they were saying about Jesus, they were saying, well, Moses said this and Moses said that. So in their view, they're not going to argue that Moses was a appointed one, an anointed one, and in a form, and a, an Elohim to the people. He was God's spokesman. Uh, this isn't so far-fetched to modern Christianity. Are there churches today that say somebody who holds a special office is the vicar or the representation of Jesus Christ? Yes, they do. Churches do that. They say this person is God's spokesman on earth. That would be in, the, in the, for what he, Jesus is saying... It would have been a legitimate term to call them an Elohim. God would have called them Elohim in Psalm 82. And so Jesus is just using that and saying, special anointed messenger, that's what I'm claiming to do. I am one with God. I am speaking on his behalf. In the same way was Moses one with God. We, and I'm not talking deity, but did Moses, by Jewish concept, think Jewish concept, would Jews say Moses worked directly with God as a team? Yeah. Was he God's mouthpiece? Did he do the works of the Father? Yeah, yeah, they would have no doubt about that. So he would be one. Remember, they were monotheistic. They had no concept of Trinity. And so Jesus is just using their monotheism and saying, I'm the same as Moses was. I'm a mouthpiece. I'm a messenger. Now, if you say that we're supposed to listen to God's mouthpiece, Moses, then what's the conclusion here? You should listen to me because I'm as much of a messenger as an Elohim as Moses. Do you see where he's gone with this? Okay. So he's made it very, very simple, very clear that you should listen to anybody that God has, has elevated to the point of Elohim as being his spokesman. Now, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that Moses was divine, but he was just at a position of representative of the divine. Jesus is trying to make clear he's not only a divine messenger, but he also is divine. So he moves, moves it up a notch. But his point is, why are, you, why are you stoning me? Because I tell you the truth? Because I speak for God? You're, you're mad that I'm telling you, you know, as God would speak? And so the answer is no. And then he goes on and he expands upon that. He says, in the next word, next verse, he said, You called them gods, in whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified. There's your word, Hanukkah. Dedication. Same word that's used in the original. Is that Jesus, he says, I am dedicated and sent into this world. You, you blaspheme. Because you said I, I, because I said I am God. If I do not the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do the works of the Father, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So he is making it very clear. He and the Father have a relationship. Let me, let me see if I can build upon this now. Let's take his entire John 10 message, messages. Let's put it together. I am sanctified by the Father. I am dedicated at the Feast of Dedication, I am the dedication. I am the uh, representation. I am the cleansing of the temple. I am the uh, restorer of Judaism. Okay, he's made that very clear. He is making claim, I am sent by the Father. Okay, making it very, very clear. God sent me, not somebody else's in my own will. I am the Son of God. I have this special relation to Him. And the Son of God, we described in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 9. I'm that guy. 
I'm that one that was predicted. So making that very clear. I and the Father work together. We're in total harmony. We have the same purpose. We have the same uh, object. We have the same desires. I do his works. And the works that I do, I do by him, through him. We are in such total interdependence upon one another. I'm one with the Father. Okay, we, we are one. We are united. There is no division. There is no discord. There is no disagreement. We are in total. So basically he is saying, yep, I'm the anointed one. I am the, I am the promised one. I'm it. And so you guys are upset about that. Their response, verse 39. After he's done all that, therefore they sought again to take him. They are going to grab him. Do you remember the beginning of this story? He is surrounded by them. There is no way of escape. Somehow, some way, miraculously, he gets out of there. And he gets away from those people and moves out of that temple area. And why is it that he can get away from this crowd that has him surrounded? Because my blank has not yet come. My time, my hour, my appointed, it's not his time yet. So up until that moment, until it's his time, he is invincible. He is, you know, they, they can't apprehend him. And so he finishes out. Let, let's finish some conclusions. Let's make some statements that are very, very important. If you were reading this book, this doesn't impact you and me the way it would if we, if we first read this when it was in the original writings. In the original writings, how many people that got this letter first would have said, oh yeah, we, we've known all along Jesus is God. That's news to them. That is something that they've never heard before. You and I, we grew up hearing it since little. Even when we, some of us weren't in a good Bible preaching church, we still heard that Jesus was God. Christmas, Easter, we, we had that concept. But to the people back in the early centuries, this is phenomenal news, especially the Romans, the Greeks, people who have multiple gods, they're hearing for the first time. Peoples in our world today who are in, let's, let's pick the country of China, They've been told all their life. There was a story about how people, you know, this man, man raised from the dead. But we know, and some of you heard the story that we even talked to, when we were in China, we even talked to a family that said his body was not resurrected. His body was stolen. That lie is propagated in their school systems. For the first time, if they are hearing this message of John chapter 10, they could be having their eyes opened and see that Jesus is God. Phenomenal truth that's in this text. He and the Father work in total harmony with each other. Okay? You and I aren't quite used to that. We, we look at our leadership in our political realms, and usually our leadership, don't, they, they, they have to arbitrate. You know, and we think, okay, they'll work, you know, they'll work together to some degree, but they have opposites. God and the Son, the Father and the Son, they have no contrary views. That one isn't liberal, one isn't conservative. They're the identical, the same, working in harmony. By grace, they provide salvation to any and all of us who would listen to them. It's by grace. It's not by what we do, it's by their grace. By grace, they sought to draw the Jewish people to salvation. Not just once, but time and time again. Now think about this. The last time he was in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. How many of you, if you said, okay, they, they wanted to kill me at work, how many would go back the next day? Yeah, he goes back. Why? Grace. Grace, grace. He wants to give them opportunity. He's very patient, very persistent with them. God's salvation work for you and me who have accepted it. This is a critical thought out of this passage. God's salvation work, and I call it his work because we respond, but he does the work. God's salvation work is complete and eternal. We don't add to it, okay? We cannot lose it, therefore. Great. Thank you, God. We cannot have it taken away from us. Wow. Great. Thank you, God. We cannot be rejected. That's an amazing thought. Once we're the child of God, he keeps us the child of God, even if we do wrong. We cannot be stolen from God. Okay. Phenomenal truth. By grace, by grace. Eternal destiny, bottom line, is tied to one's response to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need to respond right to him. The question is, how have we responded? Okay. Have you responded to Christ? Have you taken, have you believed, or you like the Jews in this text, that they have him in a box? Okay. We believe in you as long as you don't disturb our religiosity. Then you're okay. But if you shake things up, then we don't want anything to do with you. Well, let, let Christ shake up your life and make a big difference. By grace, 
you can have eternal life. Phenomenal truth. Rather than embark on a whole new section, let's take a couple minutes early and let's do a little bit of fellowship. We're ready for our morning worship time. Thanks for listening.